0: Welcome to the business of experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. Thank you for joining me today in the podcast series that explores everything to do with experience. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the business of experience. I'm very privileged today to have Simon Waller online who's going to help discuss experience in a very different context. So, Maybe, uh, Simon, I'll hand over to you. And again, thank you very much for making your time available. Obviously, for the viewers that might not know Simon, uh, his background is as a speaker, author and advisor and the founder of the Digital Champions Club. So maybe with that, Simon, I'll hand over to you maybe to give us a little bit more background.
1: Thanks, Rodney. Uh, So what drives me, I suppose, the big vision around the work I do is a belief that uh, technology is having a greater and greater impact uh, on people and on society. And in a lot of my speaking work is focused on exploring what those impacts look like and how we can navigate them better. And then in my day job, I think it's my day job, I'm not sure which one's which sometimes, I then actually help organizations implement the change that actually takes them closer to the future. And uh, uh, I Feel that that's you know when we spoke, um, obviously uh, a couple of weeks ago um, at Adapt conference, like that was a thing I thought was an amazing intersection between what you guys are doing and and what I do. Uh, what does that experience look like, and how can we navigate it better?
0: No, I think that's fantastic, Simon. And I think what what spurred uh, this conversation and us sort of looking at how we could kind of capture what we started to discuss because we found ourselves in a sort of very enthralling uh, discussion about digital transformation, employee experience, and ultimately, how do we experience change? And I suppose that's a, a very nice segue in, to start our discussion today. And really, the topic, I suppose, is what is the experience of change? And maybe if I compose that first topic to you, what's your take on how people experience, I suppose, digital transformation?
1: Yeah, so um, when we talk about change, we can either have kind of good, healthy change, I suppose, or we can have uncomfortable, difficult change. Um, within organisations, and especially within the digital space, a lot of the way we frame change is this idea of digital transformation. And we talk about transformation as if it's a really positive thing. And it sounds like, like, as a word, it sounds like a really proactive word and maybe something that we should aspire to. But if you actually were to step back from that idea for a moment about what transformation actually means and therefore what the experience that people have of it, then it's not quite as positive. So for me, when we talk about transformation in, in, a, uh, in a sense of kind of, of resilience thinking and ecosystems, transformation means that we fundamentally dismantle a system, take its components, and then try and rebuild re, uh, a new system in its place. So probably the easiest way of understanding this is in terms of like an organisational restructure. So an organisational restructure is an organisational transformation. And I don't know about you, but my experience of organisational restructures is they really suck. Uh, In fact, I've never seen anyone who actually really enjoys going through an organisational restructure. And, And in a sense, that's kind of the way we are shaping change around technology to people in business. We're basically saying what we're going to do is do a huge, massive amount of change over a very short amount of time. And it's going to be an uncomfortably large amount of change. And at the end of it, we can't even promise you what you're going to get because we don't know what the new system is going to look like. So for me, if I was uh, uh, you know, in somebody's organisation and they were pitching that to me as how we're going to go about change, I'd be like, "Ah, oh, it doesn't sound very appealing. Yet the moment it feels like, especially in corporate worlds, that all of our change has to be framed in terms of digital transformation and we don't really take a lot of thought into you know, what does it, well, how, how will our end users actually experience you know that upheaval.
0: no i think you share some uh, important uh, little insights i think from my perspective as i was sharing with you i think we've been carried away a little bit too much with the fact that as you said that most things today is kind of framed as transformative and i'm not sure that we've really understood the impact of when we're doing this. And I talk a lot about the mindset rather than the tool set. But I still feel that we're really going down a kind of the same old path rather than where I think we need to be, which is ultimately recognizing that these projects and programs, and I think you shared at that particular conference the alarming statistics of failure that we're seeing. And I sort of remembered back to the, the early 2000s where I think we used to talk a lot about IT programs and projects failing at about 80%. So we're definitely, I think the data supports very much that whatever we're doing, however we're trying to do it at the moment, is not being successful. I then sort of think that we have to think not only very differently about how we redesign work, And I don't think that we really are redesigning work in many instances. What I think we're doing is bringing, as I was discussing in one of my other episodes, sort of the latest, shiniest stuff into the enterprise, and it's failing to become an embedded new work practice. And again, we all know that we probably underinvest or underestimate or both the impact of change And what is required to actually approach change differently in the way that we are ultimately going to need to be successful rather than having this kind of um, goldfish syndrome that we keep forgetting the cycle that we keep going through without getting the results. I mean, do you have any other sort of perspective to add to that from what you see across, you know, the interactions that you have?
1: Yeah, when you're talking about that, I suppose what I kept thinking about was (laughs) why is it then? that if we know that these big approaches don't seem to work, why do we continue with them? And I kind of think about this from the perspective of, you know, maybe the key decision makers who are um, who are backing this transformation approach. And I think one thing I definitely notice is a lot of businesses feeling that they're behind, that they're not out in front of, you know, this digital disruption, for want of a better word, but. this this rate of technology change, they feel like they're playing catch-up and they feel like the only way we can catch up is to make big, bold moves. Um, The problem is, I think, if you were to ask those same people and say to them, well, look, let me give you two choices. You can go big and bold with an 85% chance of failure or you can go small and incremental with a 90% chance of success. Which one would you choose? And at the moment, I don't feel like people are considering that these big, bold moves uh, come with such a low success rate. And so they're driven by this fear or this need to catch up. And, and I think that's why we keep backing a strategy that clearly, as you pointed out over the last 20 years, hasn't dramatically improved in the success rate. So for all the change managers that we've employed, um, and all the technology we invested in, we're not actually getting better at this. I think mean, that's a big part of the problem. And I think that the other thing that we really need to separate here is the difference between the organisational desire for change and the employee's desire for change. So the organisation might have that desire, but unless we can instil that desire in people, and as long as the, we do need people to go on that journey with us, then to be chances there the chance of success is pretty
0: slim. Absolutely. And I I don't want to be pessimistic about the fact of what digital transformation should represent because I think it is absolutely an imperative. I think it's just the context of the digital transformation because I think digital and transformation and both put together are, are sort of, we're at a saturation point. And I think it is an imperative. I like Michael Gale's perspective from the Digital Helix on the fact that more this is about an economic change than it is about digitizing or um, enhancing digital capability when for most organizations, they can't even really define what digital means. But I think we all understand that the forces and drivers and velocity of change around us, it means that we absolutely have to do something. I think it's... 100%, yeah. Yeah, it's to your point, I suppose, what is that something which probably leads us nicely that if that's the context or the backdrop as we've discussed what then are alternatives to transformation and how might that experience then be different because I like the the counterpoint that you make that there's a balance here between the desire and intent from an organization perspective to I suppose from an employee's perspective.
1: Yeah, so I, I suppose one of the, in, in, in the keynote that I, I did, one of the analogies I use is to think about this in terms of push down a car, and um, I haven't had to do that for a while. These days, you kind of just call up the RACV, but I remember when I was younger, uh, you know, university days, and, you know, your car battery would go flat, and you'd have to then kind of get a whole bunch of mates out to help you push down the car. And in a sense, that kind of feels like, you know, this, this need that we have for organisations to kind of build momentum around uh, technology-driven change. And I completely agree what you said. It's like, it, it, it's not that we don't need to create this change, but the way that we're currently packaging it up as digital transformation isn't really working. So when you take that analogy of push down a car, it feels like the current strategy that we're entailing is we kind of go back 50 metres and take a running like a running jump at the back of the car and we just try and, like, just force it to start moving. But anyone who if you ever tried that, just, like, running into the back of a car, what you'd find is the car doesn't actually gain that much momentum, certainly not enough to start, and the most likely thing is you're just going to do yourself an injury. Uh, if you want to actually push start a car, you need to get a whole bunch of people and take a cool and concerted approach to all pushing at the same time. Like that's the only strategy. If you want to push down the car faster, the only thing that happens is you must get more people pushing. But there's no, there's no skipping steps. Like You don't skip the step where you start building momentum and automatically get to the bit where you drop the clutch. You must go through all the steps. And if you don't go through the steps and if you don't get enough momentum up before dropping the clutch, the only thing that happens is you conk out and you start the whole process again. So if we kind of were to step back and you know, go, well, if that was our analogy around digital change and how do we get enough momentum in our organisation that our adoption of technology is self-sustaining? Like that's how I think it's like, you know, maybe a broader objective that we could look at rather than an individual package of work. Um, how do we build a self-sustaining approach to adoption of technology? My view is that the alternative is you know, to to big a regular change that no one likes is small incremental change that people actually want. So how is it that we actually work with people in the business, the people who we need to change with us? Because often I think we, you know, from a digital transformation perspective, uh, it used to be that the technology bit was hard and the people bit was easy. Like it used to be that the technology changed slower than technology. Uh, sorry, the technology changed sold than the people did. So you take an old version of, say, like Microsoft Office and you get a new update every four years. So that means you've got four years to embed the changes from the last version of Microsoft Office. These days, you get a new version of Microsoft Office every two weeks. It's clearly changing now faster than the people can. So we have to actually find a desire in people for that change to happen. We need to find ways that technology is going to make their life better. So not just the work better or the the business more profitable but actually go down and find what's the individual benefit the what's in it for them of change as opposed to just the what's in it for me
0: yeah and i think i think simon again that um a lot of these i mean i think we've all learned for, certainly for some of us that have been around a little bit longer than others that that there are different approaches to this and i've always discovered that every organization that I've been involved in, whether I was part of that organization or I came into it, there was no shortage of genuine people that knew what needed to be done. And in some ways, if I go back to some of my knowledge management sort of background, yes, it is about creating that relative advantage. It also is about creating, like with the diffusion of innovation, sort of where are the early adopters? Where are the people that can create in what I like to talk about, that you've got to go and take something, just take an example and create that as an exemplar model because it creates, I suppose, as some of the analogies that we talk about as the northern star or whatever, you know, where's the direction? And I talk a lot about the difference between what I see as being the behaviour of how we enacted things in the 20th century, which to me was very much largely more predicated on predictability it was built more on the ideologies of optimizing and standardizing and somewhat industrializing and we had a lot more time because obviously as we said before it was a far more predictable and consistent uh, environment now obviously there were peaks in that but now if you think about the 21st century I see that this is about trying to navigate and design about um, uncertainty. And it's about trying to, whether it's a Gartner view or other people's views of of the turns, we're in a very different dynamic environment where in some areas, some industries, some businesses, a lot of what is affecting them is outside of their control. And this no longer is a matter of a nice to have. This is an imperative. And what we mean by that is this is some people's Survival. I was listening to something that said it took 21 years for Amazon to be larger than Walmart. It took, you know, something like seven years for Uber to be as big as Tesla. So I think, you know, we've all seen those stories and data points about Wall Street and the original companies that started that and how many were left. And I think that everybody understands this because everybody, you know, as we stand on stage, you know, they don't want to hear more of the theory. Because you know, it's about how do we do it? I think people are just so over the ideologies and methodologies in some ways about the fact that they've got to be doing this. And I don't want this little conversation to be another one of those because we all know that we get a lot of feedback which is kind of, yeah, yeah, that's all kind of interesting, but you, know, you know, that's not what I'm being asked to do. What I'm being asked to do is more with less and you know, my organization is changed out. So to me, that seems to say there's a, there's a very inherent problem. If an organisation is changed out, then leadership must be failing to understand what the organisation is being asked to do. Is that something that, that you have a view on?
1: Yeah. So a couple of things I just picked up on what you said, Ronnie. Like, so, so one about that, definitely that change fatigue. And again, I'll go back to, well, it's easy to get over bad change really quickly. So if I feel that the change comes with a personal cost to me yet no personal benefit to me, I'm going to get bored of it pretty quick. So I think that it's not, I would argue that when people say that they're change fatigued or change, like changed out, I would kind of still come back and go, well, yeah, but what what type of change are you pushing at the moment? Is it the change that people want or the change that they feel that they have to do? I agree 100% that we have some very different structural, there's very big structural differences in the way that organisations operate now. And one of the things that I kind of immediately, you know, twigged for me when you were saying that is around, uh, you know, how uh, dynamic the labour force is now. So, you know, some organisations bemoan the fact that there's just a lack of employee loyalty anymore. Obviously, though, that loyalty, I think, is probably lacking in both directions. But if you're not delivering the change and the environment that I actually want to operate in, I'll just go somewhere else. So there's a really interesting research done by um, Sloan Business School uh, a few, few years back, and it said that if you don't give people the technology that they feel that they need to do their job, um, there's something like a third more likely to leave your organisation in the next three years. Quite a substantial rise, and that. that is regardless of seniority. So that's the same whether you're someone who's newly employed or whether you're a member of the executive team. If you're not given the technology, you need to do your job, you'll go somewhere else. And yet what I also know is that when you do the research about do people feel that they're getting the technology or that they've even been engaged properly around the technology to do their jobs, IT teams feel that they're engaging people well and yet only a third of people would agree. So there's a massive disconnect at the moment, I think, in terms of the types of technology projects that we're delivering and whether they're really serving the people in our business. And, you know, in this dynamic environment, I think we have to really, the only legitimate way that we can respond is to decentralise some control. In most organisations, you know, the the decisions around technology are still centralised within a handful of people most people cannot make decisions themselves about what IT solutions or platforms or apps um, that they want to use to do their job well, even though they are clearly the most qualified person in the business to know what technology they need to do their job well. So, you know, at the moment I go like, you know, this this idea that we, we, we come up with the latest um, theory and methodology and us not wanting to just uh, drop a, a new kind of, theoretical perspective on it but i reckon a lot of these times when we come up with the latest agile or whatever we want to call it um we don't actually address the structural requirements for those things to be effective and instead we go like oh we just want the tools and we want the names so we just want to call things you know we're going to call them squads now and uh, i don't know villages or whatever we want to call them and we're going to give them Scrum masters, and we're going to use, you know, sprints, and, and yet we don't fundamentally question the structural differences required if we are actually going to make meaningful incremental change. We haven't yet got buy in from the executive team that they are actually willing to divulge decision making and control. They're willing to give that up. They're actually going to give up control of their budget and give it to somebody lower down in the organization. Like that's the stuff that really has to happen, and I don't think it does happen. I think that we, as I said, just we do something that's easy that has the semblance of changing the way we change, but doesn't actually have meaningful impact.
0: No, I think you touch on really important things. And just listening to you there, you know, a couple of different thoughts went through my mind. That I've read lots of different success stories, which really is about that empowering and really being able to disseminate that control and enable, I suppose in some ways we, you know, we talked very briefly about the Toyota story about why was the way that they approached redesigning work so powerful, which ultimately lots of people have tried to mimic. It really was because they enabled people on the production line to stop the production line, which in some other areas would be unheard of because you fix the problem somewhere else, but they stopped the production line. So they weren't creating a greater problem. And I think in a lot of our organizations, you know, going back to that, why do we need to, you know, kind of ultimately all of this is about changing the mindset. And I think a great opportunity rather than a, you know, a, a negative view, it's a really a great opportunity for different styles of, of leadership to really start showing the way that we can still balance the control that an organization feels that it needs. But I do believe very much that the posture of an organisation needs to become more dynamic. It needs to become, in some ways, a little bit more self-regulating rather than this kind of come-from-the-top command and control, which we all know because we all participate in that, that that is not the right way. It doesn't make us feel connected. It doesn't make us feel belonging to the organisation, which really is the crux of employee experience is I want that flexibility I want that belonging I want that meaning and purpose and as you say the data is beyond repute now that people do not need to work for you this is not the 1940s it's not the 1950s this is not work hard at school go to university you've got to get that job because that's a job for life that that is no longer the situation we have skills gaps we have a lot of different wars on talents that we've been talking about. But now, the imperative for organization is not only to attract talent, but to retain that talent, but to enable that talent to reach its full potential. And they're different things, whether you're looking at it from an HR perspective, a C-suite perspective, about the future of your organization. Because we all know the technology is going and is Gaining the velocity to do a lot of things in work. And that's because work hasn't largely been redesigned for a very long time, where humans were really the only technology available for organizations to do the type of work that really offices were created as the kind of people factories. Now, I'm not trying to be over dramatic, but we went from the field to the factory. And I think we're seeing this evolution of what is an employee, what is an office. And I think that we're doing a disservice to how we need to create what I believe very wholeheartedly in as that kind of concept of the social organization. And I joked about the fact that, you know, I look forward to the day, not only where we can talk properly about equality, uh, and talk properly about that we've closed these gaps on the data bias that I was discussing w- in my previous podcast with with Grace Carrison about the invisible women. We've got to be able to create these environments that are people-centric, that harnesses what human roles will be in the future of work around creativity, empathy, and human connection. And what we've got to stop doing is this fascination to think of things as silver bullets, whether it's agile, where even the, the, the original founders of the manifesto said, hold on, this isn't something that's prescriptive around how you work. It was something to make you think differently about how you worked. And the same thing can be applied to what I see very often as the posts, as we all do on social networks, that says new ways of working, and it's a new office where it just has open plan, right? (laughs) And we all know that that doesn't solve anything except whoever walks around the floors counting how many bums are on seats to get their utilization. And we've got to do a better job, whether it is property and facilities, talking to technology, talking to HR. We've got to stop these fragmented approaches and have a far more holistic view now, obviously, I kind of felt I got on my soapbox there, so I'll <laughs> I'll, um, I'll step back down from my soapbox. No, there's
1: one thing I reckon. I uh, you know, as you know, I'm a I'm a massive fan of lean, um, and 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 in the work I do now with businesses, a lot of the tools that I I use are, are tools that and that are based in uh, on lean tools. But I think perhaps more importantly, the the cultural Norms that I espouse as being you know, sound cultural norms to facilitate change and enable the uptake of technology are based in, in lean. And when you were saying this before, the thing that really resonated with me is that when you think about, um, say, for instance, Toyota's decision to give people that empowerment to stop the production line or to guide the change around their job, I don't think that when they did that back in the 1940s and 50s, what they were thinking about was, gosh, this is allowing our people to become a more full and empowered version of themselves. This is going to be great for our human resources and reduce staff turnover because they didn't have a staff turnover problem. They did that purely because it was a far more effective way of creating change. So they only did it because it created better change outcomes and fundamentally because it created a better change experience because people decided and had buy-in on the change that they wanted to see in the workplace. No, absolutely. So I think what's interesting yeah. is that, you know, like the idea that, this, is a, that this, this idea of empowering people is a fluffy thing, that empowering people is a way of us making, you know, self actualizing individuals in the workplace. But it's like, no, that's just, that's just the benefit. That's the added benefit. The real benefit is, is that that empowerment actually means you create better change. And, and I think that that's, you know, when we talk about well, what are those ingredients of what makes really good change, what's a great change experience is like, I have to feel that I've got a sense of control. No one in the world likes change being forced on them i guarantee that that's how my kids feel sometimes. Second of all, change should be small and incremental because I can handle small change easily and quickly. I can't handle big change easily and quickly. I can't get my head around big complex change. I can get my hand around small changes. And I think the third thing is it should be continuous because the the more we do change, the better we are at it. So change like that idea, the change like a muscle is, you know, one way of thinking about it. But, but I think this idea though, that, that, why, Why when we've done a change, would we somehow assume that following a change is some period of stability? There's no stability anymore. We just have to actually find a, 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 an environment that celebrates ongoing change all the time. So that continuous improvement, I suppose, you know, foundation of things like lean kind of comes back to the fore.
0: No, absolutely. And I think... You're right you know I've I've had a lot of experience with Japanese organizations and I'm I'm absolutely certain that those decisions to work in that particular way would have been very largely or purely driven from the efficiency standpoint because of the way that they would look at how they got the better quality outcome and and I think it's only after the fact because of the kind of different cultural elements across our region that the people working that really there were a lot of other benefits to being able to give that type of, and I'm sure the probably didn't use the word empowerment, but, but it was very much more focused in the Japanese way of thinking about continuous improvement. And I think you're right, Simon. I think where we are now, if you think about it, is that I think we have to look for, cause I think I'm going to use the word leadership and I'm going to use the word leadership because it's not a title. I look at leadership as something that is done when it's required and everyone can provide leadership. It's not a it's not an entitlement, it's not something that has to be in your title. And I think we need to, in many different ways, challenge the fact of the posture that organizations have to start creating, in some ways, that groundswell, because I know that I don't believe anybody deliberately wakes up in the morning not wanting to go to work and not wanting to have a highly engaged enjoyable experience at work. So what we've got to do and the and the elements of what an organization needs to do is just find better ways to harness what is already there. Because we all know that the data tells us that organizations that have highly engaged highly motivated they have compelling experiences, they feel belonging, they feel alignment to the purpose and meaning of an organization, are going to outperform any other organization exponentially. And I suppose that's probably a good way for us to set the tone for home here in the sense that you've touched on those ingredients for a great change. And I do believe that change now is the constant. And that means leadership postures on risk have to change. And I think there's a big lag between the desire and what people are, in some ways, marketing as transformation to how we absolutely redesign work and the future of that. And then we can argue what label and vehicle we discuss. But I think the only way forward is through that constant incremental logic, not revolution maybe to some, but the evolution. So if that's the case, What's stopping us? As our final thought, Simon, what's stopping us from making that happen?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things we just we touched on at different points during this conversation that I think probably give us a bit of a way forward. And I and I and I I think is the first is let's just we need we need a cold shower and to realise that what we currently do and the approach that we've taken for the best part of 20 years. Is still not working, so whatever we do has to be fundamentally different than what we've tried in the past. Um, I'd say the second thing is 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 to acknowledge that taking on these tools without some form of cultural change does not work. So we have to be willing to to transform the culture of the organisation. And when I talk about the culture, the culture is like the accumulation of people's actions and the way that we work around here. And if our culture is dominated by that top-down approach where we centralise decision-making in the hands of a few people and disempower the majority of our workforce, I think that particularly is something that we need to undo. Now, when it comes to that, I often get, if I say this to people, especially in, in kind of executive positions, let's not call them leadership roles, in executive positions, they go, yeah, but we can't suddenly give people, we can't just suddenly give people, um, let them do whatever they want, can we? And it's like, well, no, we kind of see over the floodgates, but we have to start moving towards the environment that we actually see is, is going to be successful. So we have to find ways of empowering people a little bit. I talk about um, this idea of minimum rigour. So at the moment, if I was a, a user inside a business and I wanted to make a change to my operating environment, there may just be no clear way at all for that to happen. There's no, I don't know if I'm meant to speak to IT, do they have any budget for this? How is this actually going to get approved? Is that a transparent process? What if we could put in a process that we all agree on that allows, you know, what's the minimum rigour required to make a change? So I might need to consult with IT, but because it's my budget, I get to make the final decision. So we now just need to start putting like the structural difference, you know, something that's structurally different in place that people feel like they're empowered. And I think when we talk about specifically from the perspective of technology driven change, we've got to find ways of bringing IT and operational roles closer together. Um, I actually believe that most IT people really want to help. Um, And what probably exists is a lack of empathy between operational roles and IT roles. And they often sit in different parts of the building, maybe in completely separate buildings, or in some cases actually on different continents. And in that environment where we don't have direct contact, you know, between... People who, have, who are dealing with this change and dealing with the business problems on a day-to-day basis and people who have access to the technology and the solutions, when we create that geographical distance, we, we don't allow empathy and we don't allow understanding to happen. We don't allow the transfer of information and ideas between those groups. I'd love to see in organisations as part of that structural change. How do we co-locate our IT people and our operational people so that we can actually uncover what is the change that people really want to see and how do we actually help facilitate that change. So as I said, I don't think it's necessarily about a set of tools. I think it's about the structural changes we need to make to allow this to happen.
0: No, I would agree. And look, I think from our perspective and my perspective, you know, we've very much been working around how we take a more holistic view. But as, you know, our conversation started a few weeks ago, as you said, you know, our data and our research and our reports points very clearly to that disconnection at the moment between what effectively IT thinks that it's doing a job and I think that's very much the context of IT providing support versus what the business thinks because the business is not just thinking about IT in the context of support and I think that's why we see such a disconnect between what IT thinks is doing a pretty good job versus what business thinks is not doing a good job and I don't want to make this you know punching bag about IT because you know I've been in IT and run IT And I know that I think that really it's changing our perspective. I think that very much I grew up in IT with the idea that I knew a lot and I had to sort of design a service and push it at the business and the business needed to use that service. And I think I talk about now more the outside-in view where what we need to do is create what I call that pro-consumer where we're actually designing and understanding the needs from the user perspective or the employee experience perspective to help then uh, collaborate and design what becomes the service that they consume. And, you know, all the way through many different aspects of what you look at, when people talk to the people that actually use the end product, if you like, you're going to end up having far better design outcomes than what we've seen from the approach where it's designed without, I suppose, you could use the word empathy. So I think, Simon, that's, um, you know, maybe the last final thought based on your experience. And I very much, again, thank you for your time today. I think we've explored some very interesting uh, concepts and, and things that we've um, explored for our listeners today. What would you suggest for, for, for our audience? What are three things then, if they're sitting there in their organisation, what are three maybe very much more pragmatic material things that you would suggest either they think or what they could do um, before we wrap up today's episode?
1: Yeah, I, um, I think that uh, the first thing I'll say is whatever level of engagement that you think you have between your IT resources and your operational people, whatever you think you've got, it's clearly not enough. So whatever current approach you're taking is not working. Um, For me, the only, I look at co-location, but the other option is actually having people work together on micro-projects that actually facilitate that collaboration, that development of empathy, that development of a shared language and understanding. Uh, Like, you've got to do something really intentional in this space if you want to change the current culture of it. The second thing would be, how is it that you better align the way that we spend money with value creation in organisations? At the moment, and I know this is something we had talked about previously, um, you know, we, we assess people on how good they are at not spending money. So we reward people for working to budget or not spending money, as opposed to rewarding people for creating value inside our organisations. So if, again, you can align money where it's spent to where value is created, like that actually gives you an opportunity to dramatically change the conversation around how we use technology in business. I think the third thing is probably, again, something that we touched on is the realisation that change is the new normal there is no stability anymore. So we need to find ways of embedding some type of continuous change process into what we do. So if the way that change currently happens is dependent on budget, yet budgeting only happens every 12 months, then clearly there's a disconnect between how we need to facilitate change to happen and how change currently happens. And again, these are the things, the structural things that we need to address if we want to make a meaningful, take a meaningfully different approach to the experience of change that people have.
0: No, that's great, Simon. I, I love the fact that we've touched on that financial part because I think you're, you're absolutely right. How we measure sort of the meritocracy that a lot of people talk about and also the way we recognise or acknowledge cost versus value, I think that there is ample opportunity that we have to change that model, you know, because what we need to do is we need to allocate funding that an organization makes a decision up front that it is going to spend exploring where greater value can be delivered rather than this age old model of running through a budget process, getting approval for a budget and then writing a business case to spend the money that you already had improved in your budget. I see a lot of steps, a lot of bureaucracy in there that doesn't actually align to any form of value creation. It is only there in some ways to prevent bad decisions. And I think the track record on that model is pretty bad. So I think that anybody that thinks that model works, they're better than me in understanding what evidence they're using for that. But I think, Simon, again, I think our time is drawn to a close. I think that was some fantastic insights that you've shared and the conversation that we've had today. I suppose, for, all, for the listeners out there, how do they find out more about yourself and your services and, and the other initiatives that you run? Can you just tell us the best way to connect into you?
1: Sure. So um, best place to find me is at uh, my website, simonwaller.com.au. Um, you can also sign there. I do a, a, a fairly close to a weekly blog, where I kind of talk about these same ideas and the impact of technology on people and on business and society. Um, you also find information there about the speaking work I do. Um, and, and obviously these are the types of topics I like to talk about. Uh, on a slightly more practical sense, the other thing you can check out is um, the digitalchampionsclub.com. So digitalchampionsclub.com.au. Um, and, and that's the work I do with businesses, which is really As we kind of talked a little bit about today, um, you know, sometimes we're with IT teams and how do we facilitate those kind of interactions with the business? Um, So, yeah, there's either the aspirational stuff in the speaking or the practical stuff in the implementation.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Simon. And I know that uh, we'll include some of those details in the summary for the listeners to be able to see that and uh, certainly go out and check out Simon's stuff. So, again, thank you, everybody, for joining the podcast today. It's another episode of the business of experience and we'll look forward to catching you in the next one.